Father God, uh, you are great and you are worthy to be praised. Uh, today we are looking at the last of these pillars. And um, my, my prayer right now, Father, is, is really simple. It's that you would give us your eyes. That we would see the people around us like you see them. And um, what Nikki just prayed to you, that it would break our hearts, whether it's physical suffering or spiritual suffering or anything of that sort, Father, that you would give us a vision of who you are and how you love these people. So I pray that that would be present today um, and that you'd open my heart to understand this text and to speak it in a way that is edifying and that you'd open my friends' hearts here today uh, to glorify your name so that they can join me in exalting in your beauty and power. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, amen. So if you've got your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Luke 10, verse 25. Luke 10, verse 25. So for the past few weeks, if you've been here the past few weeks, uh, we've been exploring the pillars of our church. Risen Hope has four pillars, and we've been doing this through the parables that Jesus taught on. We figure that if these are the main things that we love and embrace at this church, they better be the main things that Jesus loves and embrace, embraces. And I hope that over the past three weeks, and now today, the fourth week, that you've seen that. The centrality of Christ is our first pillar. Jesus is everything to us. And then the sufficiency of Scripture, how we see that and know that and enjoy that as reality is sufficient in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his revelation in the Scriptures. And then last week we looked at the family of faith. Um, and that, that last week, if you were here last week, we, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son and we looked at this idea that compassion in the heart of the father is this driving ethos of the family. In fact, the father goes to the older son at the end of the parable and he says, um, basically, uh, it was fitting for us to celebrate the younger son being brought back in. And his point was, my compassion for him was justified. And I want to invite my whole family into that. My whole family needs to share in this compassion for lost and dead people in the world. And so today we are looking at our fourth and final pillar, and that pillar is what we call love where you live. And what it means really simply is this, we love the people that God has placed around us. And to do that, I want to look at this parable that you guys will all be very familiar with. It's a parable where Jesus has an encounter with a lawyer, um, not the kind of lawyer you would imagine from popular television, a someone who knows the Jewish law, the Torah, and this encounter, hopefully it will give us a glimpse at what the understanding is and the expectation is for the family of faith to have compassion. So let's do this together. Verse 25 is where it starts. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, 
and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So in this passage, the lawyer approaches Jesus with a question. And for the context, like I said, this is, this is someone who knows Jewish law. He knows the Torah, the Hebrew uh, scriptures. And he understands um, the question's answer before he asks it. It says uh, here that he's testing Jesus. He's not asking for good reasons. This question that he's asking is literally the most important question that a human being can ask. How do I inherit eternal life. How do I become part of God's family and live with him forever? There is not a more important question to ask than this. But he's not asking with a clean conscience. He's asking to test Jesus. And Jesus, as he often does, asks a question in response. And so he asks the the lawyer, what's written in the law? Basically, when you read your Bible, what do you see in your Bible about eternal life? How will you inherit it? And the lawyer answers with two commands. One command is to love God with all of your being. It's from Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema Yisrael. And that command, the audience knows. Everybody who's there in front of Jesus right now hearing this knows, yeah, I love the Lord, my God, with all my strength, mind, soul, all of those things, my whole being. It's the apex of the law to love God in this way. And then the lawyer quotes another passage from Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself. So the two realities that, that Jesus is drawing out of this uh, lawyer are to love God with your whole, whole, whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you have answered correctly. You do this and you will live. In other words, what I believe Jesus is saying there is a family that is united by faith in God, a, a loving, trusting in God, should love their father. That's the natural outgrowth of that. They should love their neighbors as themselves. That's the nature of this family. But the lawyer, when he follows up, reveals something about his response, about his soul, about who he is in his, his position. It says in verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now Luke tells us that the lawyer is trying to justify himself when he writes this passage in the the gospel. The lawyer is trying to vindicate his performance of this commandment by questioning the specifics of the commandment. Who's who's my neighbor? The lawyer's question is, hopefully you see this, the wrong question to ask. And it shows that his heart is jacked up. So just like, and hopefully some of you have heard that message from last week, just like the brothers of the the prodigal son parable, just like those brothers, this lawyer doesn't recognize that the true inheritance isn't something you get from God. The true inheritance is God himself. And the, the brothers in the parable last week didn't get that. The younger brother asked for it in advance. And then squandered it all. And only found later on that his father is the inheritance. And the older brother is at the end of that parable still asking for a goat to celebrate with his friends. Not knowing that the person who's standing before him is the inheritance. Is the joy. 
And this lawyer, honestly, is suffering from the same situation. His question shows that his motives, like his heart's motives, are all about external conformity. It's not an inward reality that we're seeing here. This isn't authentic saving faith that is arising with, or issuing forth a love and delight in God. This is a hollow moralism. It is not trusting in God and loving him. He's not interested in God. He just wants to know what lines do I have to stay within to get the inheritance. And Jesus is about to expose this fact with a parable. Verse 30 says this, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is the beginning of the parable. And we are presented with this idea that a man is this uh, victim of a horrible crime as he travels between Jerusalem and Jericho. And now he's on the verge of death. If someone doesn't come by, the picture Jesus is painting in this verse is that he will die. He's been stripped of everything and beaten, and they've taken all that he has. He is alone. And he has no hope in this state unless someone comes by. And thank, thank be to God, someone does. That's exactly what happens. Let's see how this plays out. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, the beaten man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So there's, there's two key things that we need to observe about this passage. Two critical things that we need to understand. First, it's the words at the beginning of verse 31. These words, now by chance. Now by chance. These words are Jesus describing the reason that these two men, the Levites and the priest, are encountering this beating, beaten man. It is by chance. In Greek, it's kerasynchreon. And what that means is that this is an everyday situation. This is a run-of-the-mill situation. Um, it's coincidence that this is happening. Um, but in the Hebrew mind, they would recognize that this is the providential hand of God. Like God saw to it that this would happen. It doesn't mean they're robots. It just means that he's in control, ultimately. And so although this is a coincidence, it is not an accident. They are there for a reason. And, and, and really, as, as I read this, a wave of implications poured into my heart when I was studying for the, the, this this week. What this means, these three words, and the purpose of this parable is that whatever this parable is going to tell us in the next few verses, it has something to say about every single moment in our lives. It has something to say about every single now by chance moment that we have. And so, everything in your life, whether it's meaningless or even mundane or really important, serves a purpose. There's a purpose there. It's not an accident that you live in Kingsgate or Rose Hill or 
Redmond or the greater Seattle area. That is not an accident that you live there. It's not an accident that you live by the people that you live by or that you work with the people that you work with. God is the one that puts you there. And he put them there too, which means there is a reason for you to be there. Now, the second thing, that's the first thing. The second thing we need to notice about this passage is that these two men are from the upper echelon of religious elite. They are the top of the class. They are what you would think of when you think of men of God. They serve in the temple, the Levite and the priest. And we would look at them, the crowd would look at this lawyer and think of these two men and and say, these are holy men. These are righteous men. (laughs) These are men who have given their entire lives to Levitical and priestly service. So their entire life is like a banner of that person knows God. That person loves God. He must. But both of them ignore this beaten man. It says they passed by on the other side. Now, Now, whatever the reason, whatever the reason that they, whatever argument that they would have, that they would level and say, this is why I passed by on the other side, they know the law. They know the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Just like the lawyer is testing Jesus, Jesus is making a point at this, at this moment in the parable that as they ignore the man who is going to die, they are asking the same question that the lawyer was asking. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love to get the inheritance? That's what I want to know. I want, whatever it is, I want to just, I'll love that person. And I'll ignore everybody else just to get the inheritance. And this question, who is my neighbor? It, it may sound somewhat innocuous or innocent and, and just not even really a, a bad question, but it, its roots go down deep into another question that is very evil. And that is something that was asked at the beginning of human history. So I want to point to this exchange in Genesis 4, Genesis 4, 8 through 9. Cain spoke to his brother, Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? And he said, I do not know Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Is Cain's way of saying, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And the implied statement of both those questions is, they're not my responsibility. They're not. They're not my responsibility. And if I'm real with you, Jesus hates that response. He hates it. He does not like that response at all because it is the exact opposite of the Father's heart. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Absolutely you are. It's yes for Cain. It's yes for the Levite. It's yes for the priest. And it's yes for the lawyer who's testing Jesus. You are your brother's keeper. But that's not how this story goes. That's not how the priest and the Levite respond. They ignore a man who will die 
unless someone intervenes. But thanks be to God, the story's not over. Verse 33 continues it. And this new character that's introduced in the story will be shocking and unsettling for the lawyer who's asking the questions. Jesus says in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the beaten man, the wounded man, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and water. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them back to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, before we even get into how massive and huge and glorious that exchange is, that situation is, don't miss that it says, as he journeyed. As he journeyed. Jesus is saying the same thing that he said with the Levite and the priest. This is not an extraordinary event. This Samaritan did not set out on a mission to rescue wounded travelers. It is an everyday situation as he journeyed. This is what we do every day. We do this every day. And when he sees the beaten man, he has an amazing response. Amazing response. And if you were here last week, hopefully this response does not look foreign to you because it's not. It should look really familiar. Last week, the father sees the son from far off, the younger son coming, and it says he felt compassion and then he ran to him. He ran to him, felt compassion, and ran to him when he saw him. And verse 33 tells us in this passage, when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion and went to him. The Samaritan looks like someone we already know. Looks a lot like him. He looks like the father. And his compassion isn't cheap. It's not cheap, right? His compassion is very costly to him. He gets his own bandages out. He gets his oil, his wine, throws this person, doesn't throw a person, puts him gently on the animal. <coughs> and he gives his money to the innkeeper to pay for a, a wounded stranger and then promises, hey, listen, when I get back, if there's any extra charge, I got it. I am coming back. I'm coming back. I want to make sure this man survives. This is a huge cost to him in time, in money, in energy. This is not trivial. In the Samaritan, this is the, this is the zinger about this story, didn't need to do this. This person's probably not even one of his own people. Samaria was far north, not far north, but significantly north from Jerusalem and Jericho. And Samaria was not loved by the Jews. They hated Samaria. After most of the, the nation of Israel was, was thrown into exile by the Assyrian kings, the populations of Jews that lived in that land, the tribes that were left, the pockets of people, the Assyrian king basically sent other nations there to intermarry with them and to remove the Jewish presence from that land. People I couldn't pull out in the exile, 
I'm going to make sure I weed them out by weaving in other religions, weaving in other, other people groups. And so that's exactly what happened here. After years of marrying and developing a kind of syncretic form of Judaism, the Samaritan nation was born. It's a, small, it's a community, a pocket of cities. And so in the eyes of the Jews that did come back from the exile, these are wicked people. I do not want to associate with them at all. They're worse than a Gentile because they've compromised who they are. And there's always been, since this moment, extreme hostility between these two groups. When the Jews returned, there was immediately hostility. The Jews hated Samaria, and Samaria hated the Jews, which is why this story Jesus is telling is so ridiculous and wild. And you can be confident that, like, in this moment, as the lawyer is hearing the word Samaritan come out of Jesus' mouth, this is the last person the last kind of person I want to hear this story about. I don't want this story about a Samaritan. The last person the lawyer wants to be told his neighbor is, is the Samaritan. And ironically, the Samaritan is here being the neighbor. So Jesus' point in doing that, it's not arbitrary. He didn't just pull a people group out of his mind. His point in doing that is the one you value least in this story is the only one who's actually obeying his father. He's the only one who looks like his dad in heaven. And this is precisely how Jesus closes the story. He asks another question. He's pulling, drawing out of the lawyer, I want you to see this. Not leaving the lawyer to guess anything. Who is the the neighbor here? Let me read it. It's 36 and 37. It says, which of these three do you think, lawyer, Prove to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus' question is a different question than the lawyer's. You notice that? The lawyer's question was, who's my neighbor? Let's get some specifics out so I can figure out how to get this inheritance. And Jesus' question is, who proved to be a neighbor? And there is a world of difference between those two questions. Jesus is asking, who proved to be the neighbor? Who obeyed the command, loved the command because he delighted in his father? Who did that here instead of trying to get around it? And the lawyer's first forced to answer, he's forced to basically give Jesus the answer that the lawyer needs to obey and recognize. The one who showed him mercy is the one who did this. The one who showed him mercy, that's the one. And then Jesus responds, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Or as we would say, go and love where you live. Love where you live. Have compassion and mercy where you live. Look like your father in heaven. Be a part of this family. Show that you belong to this family, that you belong to him. And so what I want to do now that we've sort of looked at this text and understand some of the weight of it, I want to take the rest of our time and I want to do everything we can to take this truth and press it into our hearts so that it's not just something we hear, but something we believe. There's a way in which we can actually believe this as theory and love it as a theory. And it never 
to be a part of our lives. There's a way you can do that. No one's going to hear this story and say, you know, the Samaritan was wrong. He should have just left that man die. No one's going to hear that. No one. I don't care who they are, what walk of life they're in. No one's going to say that. What we would ask is, uh, what's wrong with the priest here? Why is the priest so wicked? What's wrong with the Levite here? How could they leave a man to die? What's going through your mind to let you do that? The question we need to ask is, who are we in this parable? What role do we fit in in this parable? One of the reasons why I want to ask this question is because unlike any time in human history, the suffering that exists in this world is visible in ways that it's never been before. Through technology, through communication, through travel, through all of these different elements that we can see to the other side of the world. We can see pockets of humanity that are suffering. Right now, right now, as I speak, and as we enjoy coffee and fellowship, there are people who are dying of starvation And they are dying of poor drinking water. And they're in the middle of a war-torn country. And they have no hope where they're at. There are people suffering right now. And this is going on everywhere. And we know, we have some feeling of that because we have the internet. We have TV. We, We know that this is going on. And so what this parable tells us, at least the first thing this parable tells us, is that we need to see that. And we need to have compassion like this man. Not the kind of compassion that feels guilty, really guilty, for a few minutes and then turns on TV. That's not the kind of compassion we need. I'm done with that compassion in my life. We don't need that compassion anymore. And I'm not talking about the kind of compassion that just sort of gets by and says, it's tough, it's rough, maybe later I'll deal with it. I'm talking about the kind of compassion that refuses to pass by on the other side of the road. Refuses. I will not pass by on the other side of the road. The Christian's job in this world right now is to walk into that suffering and do exactly what Jesus says here, to prove to be a neighbor, to show mercy, to show mercy, even if it comes at great cost to ourselves. The church as a whole, in our body, obviously, but the church as a whole can't afford to be uh, insular and closed off. We can't. And the reason we can't afford to be insular and closed off is because there would be no church if God had been insular and closed off and said, you know what, that's it. I I don't need to worry about myself with you guys. You guys did it on your own. Good luck with that. The family of God exists today, like God's family in this room and outside this room across the entire planet exists exists today because he did not pass by on the other side. He showed mercy. And the shocking thing about this parable, for me at least, as I reflected on this, is that it says that you can walk on the other side of the road your entire life and not even know it. Not even know it. I mean, the, uh, the Levite and the priest... They didn't think any, there was no evidence of them thinking anything of it in this parable. Jesus doesn't extrapolate at all. It's, oh, dead man, I'm just going to keep on going. There's no evidence here. They had the reasons. They had excuses that were really good sounding to them. 
but they just pass by, and that can't be us. That can't be us. We can't do it. So one dimension of this is that there is physical suffering in the world, whether it's on your street, whether it's in Kingsgate, whether it's in Kirkland or the greater Seattle area, and there is plenty of suffering for us to walk into here, down the street. Plenty of it. Whether it's there or whether it is on the other side of the planet, our job is to do whatever it is. It's to meet that suffering head on with mercy. Whether it's prayer, which is definitely what should be going on, money, resources, whatever it looks like, we do everything in our part, or even if you feel like God's saying, hey, listen, I want you to be on the front lines. It may be a call to go to the front lines. Whatever it is, we need to prove to be a neighbor to unwind and undo the physical suffering in this world, to love compassionately where we live or wherever we find ourselves. That's one dimension of this parable. The other dimension is even tougher, more difficult for me. Beyond physical suffering in this world is an eternal reality. Eternal reality. Verse 30 says here that the robbers left the man half dead. They said it, it says he's on his way to dying. He's about to die. That's how the Levite and the priest found him, almost dead, which is an interesting choice of words for Jesus to use because just a chapter before this in Luke 9, he says something interesting about people in this world who do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ and do not trust in God. Listen to what he says here, Luke 9, 59 through 60. To another, he said, Jesus is saying to another person, follow me. But the man responds to him and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells this person, hey, listen, you leave the dead to bury the dead. In other words, what he's saying there is physical death isn't the biggest problem in the world. It's not the biggest problem. It is a problem. Physical death and physical suffering are a huge problem. And your shoulders should be toward to that plow. That's not the biggest problem in the world. The biggest problem in the world is spiritual death. Because every human being is born dead. And they are dead in their affections toward God. And they are dead in their affections toward other people. They respond selfishly and their disposition toward other people is naturally, let me take what I want. And Jesus is saying they're dead. They're dead. And their deadness is only a shadow of their future. Listen to Paul describe this state in Ephesians 2. First few verses of Ephesians 2. He's talking to the Ephesian church, and he's describing to them what it was like before they encountered Christ. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says the rest of mankind are children of wrath. This is humanity, all of them. 
It's the world we live in, who we once were. Right now, not reconciled to Jesus Christ and God through Jesus, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are dead in a way that we can't even conceive of. Our deadness doesn't even get to the doorstep of what this is. An entire world of people following a course that will lead them into head-on judgment. This is real. This is not a game. This is not a joke. This eternity is real. So now this is where it gets heavy for me. You were like, well, that was pretty heavy. (laughs) This is where it gets really personally heavy for me. Because the half-dead man in the parable isn't just some injured person on the side of the road. They are someone who doesn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's real deadness. That's ultimate and final deadness. Someone who doesn't see Jesus for who he is. And if someone doesn't come up to that person and have compassion on them, enough to say something, it is over for them. It's over. So when I, when I reflected on this personally over the last week as I've, as I've pressed into this passage, it's been painful. I recognize that these are, this man on the side of the road, are people in my neighborhood right now. They are on my street. They are at my workplace. These are people, human beings, made in the image of the living God who will exist forever, souls that will exist forever, either embracing the glory of God as their supreme joy or being cast away from it into outer darkness. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two realities that we're, we're looking towards, we're heading towards. And this is a problem for me because I realize that when it comes to telling people about the gospel, I am often the one who passes by on the other side of the road. Often. I'm the Levite in the parable. I'm the priest in the parable. And I'm asking, are they really my neighbor? Am I really obligated to speak to them about this? I'm asking, like, that question. And so the question here today, really for us collectively, is are we all asking that question when we shouldn't be? Are we asking who is my neighbor instead of how can I prove to be a neighbor to that person and show mercy? And so when we talk about this idea of Ephesians 2, when we lay it on top of Jesus' parable, we need to recognize that these are the people we live with. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is everyone in our lives that doesn't know Jesus Christ. This is your neighborhood in Kingsgate. They populate the houses that are on your street 50, 60 feet away from where you live. In Kingsgate, the greater Seattle area, throughout this whole area. And right now, they are following a course that will end, it'll take them right off the edge into destruction. And we're the only ones who have what they need, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to be clear up front. The reason that the words by chance, now by chance, and as he journeyed are in this parable right now is that you are in the lives of people that God loves deeply, 
who don't know him. Right now, you are in their lives. In fact, you've never locked eyes with somebody that God doesn't love, ever. And they need to know the gospel. They need to know this news. You see these people every single day. It, it may be a coincidence, but it is not an accident that you see them. As you journey, as you work, as you play, on your street, everywhere, you are in the lives of people who God desires for them to see compassion, the compassion of the Father. They don't need to stay dead. They don't. They don't need to stay dead. There's a God who loves them, and he's invited them into his family through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that invitation comes through us, his people. And so Jesus is pleading with us in this parable. He's telling us, go do likewise. Don't pass by on the other side of the road. Don't do it. Don't do that. You can't afford to ignore them any longer. Go to them. Love them. Invite them into your home. Have the compassion of the Father towards them. Meet with them for coffee. Meet with them for lunch and talk with them. And when they see your love, communicate to them, that's Jesus who did that. That's Jesus who did that. And the reason we can do this, we can speak about Christ with great confidence to people who don't know him is because Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is not the end of the story. There are verses after Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and we don't end the story with children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We end the story with verses 4 through the rest of Ephesians but 4 through 5 specifically but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What these verses that Paul wrote tell us is that their deadness, the deadness of unbelief, does not need to be the last word. It doesn't, and you know this, because your deadness wasn't the last word either. You know this to be true. At some point, whether you fully recognize it or not, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, God looked down on you and being very rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead and had nothing to give him at all, made you alive. He laid hold of your deadness looked at your soul in the eyes and said, enough is enough, live. And he spoke that over you and you lived. This doesn't need to be the, last, the end of the story. We were saved by grace. Something can happen here for these people outside these walls. And this, we know this because it happened to us. God saved us and so he can certainly, certainly save them. And this is what it means to love where you live. We have, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest news in the world. There is, I don't, that's not a superlative. I can feel confident about that. There is no other news better than this, that Jesus saves. There's no news better than that. That anyone who receives Christ and believes in his name is given the right to become a, children, a child of God. He is adopted into that family. 
And here's the thing about when we think about the gospel and its implications on this story in particular, the Good Samaritan story. Good Samaritan parable is an extraordinary sacrifice. There's no question about it. Nobody reads that story and says, that man didn't do enough. They read that story and they're like, that is wildly gracious. That is incredible. It is nothing, however, compared to what happened to you and I through the cross. Nothing. Not even close. Though the Samaritan shows an extraordinary amount of love that is costly, it is a mere shadow of the mercy found in the cross of Jesus Christ. A mere shadow. And let me show you why. Let me enumerate really briefly why. The Samaritan went to a man as he journeyed on the road. He went to him as he saw him. (laughs) But according to Philippians 2, Christ had to empty himself and condescend from a throne of glory, which means, if you're keeping track, he had to cross an infinite distance between us and him to get to us. His worth and our lack of worth. The Samaritan bound up a man who had been beaten, which is wonderful, but Jesus Christ had to be bound and beaten for us so that we would be healed. Isaiah 53, 5 says, by his wounds you are healed. The Samaritan poured out oil and wine to clean this man's wounds, this man's injuries. But in order to clean us, Jesus Christ had to pour out his infinitely precious blood. And 1 John 1, 7 tells us this very thing. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We see the Samaritan place this beaten, bruised man on his animal and carry him to an end. But Christ lifts us up in his nail-scarred hands and carries us to his Father. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. He died to bring us to to his father. And finally, although the Samaritan gives the the innkeeper this this money, this down payment to care for the injured man to retur- before and when he and he promises to return, Christ has given us his holy spirit. Much more than a down payment, it is that, but it's much more than a down payment as he unfailingly seals us for the day of redemption when Christ promises to come back for us. John 14, I love these words. John 14, Jesus says this, and he's talking to you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. And I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. This is his promise to you. So listen, The reason why, as I close, the reason why we can show this world great love and compassion is because we have been shown great love and compassion, radical love and compassion. But here's the hard part. This is the difficult part, and you know this is difficult. None of us right now want to pass by on the other side of the road anymore. But we recognize that because of the way life is, come Tuesday, come Thursday, 
the weight of this will not hit us the way it does when we look at these words. It won't. And so what I want to pray is that for God to be able to graciously invade our souls every single day with this weight and this compassion so that it flows out from us to people who need it. In a few short chapters after the parable of the the Good Samaritan, there's another parable, uh, the parable of the great banquet. And the master of the house is bringing people in. And he says to his servants, go out to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about his family. Bring them in. And then he says, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. Compel them to come in. Why does he ask that question? Why does he say that statement? He says it, that my house may be filled. That my house may be filled. This is the heart of the Father for this world. The filling of his house is the inbringing, the ingathering of his family. And right now outside these walls, most of the people who are out there have no idea what it is like to be loved by this father. They've never tasted his love like you have. They've never felt the warmth of his embrace. They have never felt this. And the reason we are here today the reason we're alive on this planet right now is to change that. That should not be. And so what I want to pray in the next few minutes here for, and as we worship for us to think about, is that God would do this in us, that he would so grip us with this reality that we would be willing to do whatever it took. Whatever it took to speak love and joy and hope and peace into people who will be separated from him forever if we don't. Let's pray. Father God, it is difficult for us to conceive of the amount of people that are outside these walls, that do not know you. And it is a heavy burden for us to go out here and for us to be willing to risk things in our lives to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It feels, for me personally, almost impossible. The need is too great. I am too weak. There's fear in my heart right now rising up saying, I can't do it. I'll just forget it and and move on. Let that not be true for me or for my friends here, Father. Lay hold of our hearts the kind of anchor and gripping that is needed for us to feel compassion for the people outside these walls that need to know you. People who are physically suffering in this world, who we need to give time, money, resources, prayer towards, and people who will be suffering for all eternity if we don't be your hands and feet so that you intervene in their lives, Father. You are sovereign over all things.
We know that. But we know that part of your sovereignty is causing us to see this text today and to feel these feelings for these people today. Don't let it fall to the ground. Don't let your word come to us and return empty. May there be fruit from this. May you use us in the next year, Father. May risen hope be used to reach the people of Kingsgate and whatever communities are represented here, Father, so that your name would be exalted and glorified and that your house may be filled. That's why we're here. Help us to do this task, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.